Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Welcome back to part two of my episode about my father, Woody. Farming was in my father's blood. I admired him for having such vision. His first school was the Salisbury Convent with only four other boys, a sinister, dark, Dickensian kind of place, red brick institutional buildings surrounded by tall prison-like walls and patrolled by nuns who had no compunction to spare the child. Lacking in love or bodily comfort, like a foundling hospital, they stripped the children of all reference to family or home. John always claimed that the nuns deliberately starved him to the point of having to cadge food off the other lads, who, of course, were Catholics, and therefore received more grub. He had the skinniest legs in the country, something he blamed on those wretched nuns. When John finally left school, he was sent to relatives in Scotland for two years to learn all about farming under extreme post-war conditions. It might seem a strange thing to do, but the lessons my father learned on those cold, bracken-covered Scottish braes stayed with him all his life. And indeed, my brother Duncan still benefits from many of his farming techniques. Woody arrived in the UK during the coldest winter on record, wearing flannels and a sports coat, together with an icicle attached to the end of his nose. It was 1945, when the rest of the world was trying to get out of Europe, my father was sent back. Work in Scotland was hard by any stretch of the imagination, let alone for a young man who had grown up in Africa's warm climate. Faced with biting winds, hail, snowstorms, the like of which many a Scotsman hadn't seen, and miles and miles of wet, scratchy heather on the east coast of Scotland near a village called Ochemblay, Woody cut his teeth. During lambing season, John came rushing into the house to anxiously tell his uncle that one of the lambs had been born without a bum hole. Looking John up and down, his dear uncle said, Then don't just stand there, laddie. Gee out and make a bloody hole. Which, of course, John did, using a sharp pike. And the lamb apparently lived to see another day. I know, I know, I know, my Scots accent isn't very good, but it'll just have to do. John never forgot the hardships of Britain, the poverty of war, the ghastly weather, the grey skies hanging overhead like a pall, the pallid, haunted faces of the people returning from hell. But he also left with a lasting love of this wild, godforsaken country and its hard-working folk. And after a short sojourn in Europe, he saved up the cost of his fair home to Rhodesia and never left Africa again. On the 
Always an adventurous spirit, my dad made his way into the untamed bush 120 miles north of Salisbury and opened up the Sitwe Farm in the Victory Block on Bookwees with neighbours Tim Harrington, Alan Crouch and Martin Chance. It was a lonely life for Woody, with rarely a visitor, roads being largely unnavigable back then, and bridges were simply drifts that flooded in the rainy season. But this fabulous wild land had many hazards. Least of all were the leopards that roamed right up to the bottom of the garden, even when I was a child. On one occasion, John's vehicle broke down at night on the way back from a neighboring farm and was followed all the way home by a hungry male. John recalled how each time the moon came out from behind a cloud, he could see the yellow shape of the animal slinking along in the shadows three yards away. One moment it was there, then it was gone into the shadows, only to return again a few minutes later. The whole way back, that leopard tracked him, and Woody loved every minute of it the danger, the excitement, the adrenaline. His love for the wildlife possibly surpassed his love for the farm. Woody carved that farm out of nothing, mile upon mile of rough, rocky woodland. Situi Farm, well, it was his life, all 13,000 acres of it. He knew every crevice, every hill, every undulation and every brook. He was selfish about it, protective of it even. You could see this passion in his eyes. By now my father had crossed the grading shed and walked into his office to check the books while I wandered around the shed trying to act interested and making sure not to stand on any of the searingly hot steel pipes that snaked across the floor. I rarely wore shoes on the farm, particularly as a child. Some staff nodded or greeted me in chalapa-lapa. Kanjan pikinin buana. Kanjan Joel, I would reply. It was always the men who greeted you, never the women who might just giggle behind their hands like shy geishas, no doubt saying something sarcastic to their companions, the whole group bursting into uncontrolled laughter. We were none the wiser since neither John nor I spoke Shona. Chalapa-lapa is a pigeon form of Shona. Swahili and English with a smattering of Afrikaans and even a tiny bit of French thrown in, possibly from the days of the Huguenots in South Africa. It was a language that came to be loathed later as it represented all that was colonial. Shona was an easy language, yet, well, yet we chose not to learn it at school. Back then it simply did not cross our minds to learn, and I suppose Chalapalapa was conveniently understood across the board with all tribes. John emerged from a small dusty office, which was really just a glorified corner, housing a rickety rattan chair and a three-legged table, the fourth leg a pile of bricks. Inside, a pile of elephant tusks were piled untidily beneath a chest of drawers, built from African teak by my great-grandfather. On the wall, Woody had pinned a large aerial photo of the farm. This black and white image detailed every minute detail of the 13,000 acres, the tiny dirt road between the two sections winding lonely and thread-like, 
between coppies and dark gullies and ravines through the middle of the land mass. The largest area on the map was Matimba, just a, a massive grey expanse of woodland and bush. And of course, the pinprick of the house, so small, so insignificant, surrounded by dense, dark woodland. Our life reduced to numbers and tram lines in a ratio of 50,000 to one. My father was a hands-on farmer and he spent as little time as possible writing checks or poring over invoices. Perhaps his Scottish ancestry made him allergic to the checkbook. Life here was dominated by second-hand goods, cheap Rhodesian-made products, spare parts repurposed over the years, and for us children, chocolate that separates and goes white after a few weeks. There were fuel coupons which were issued with the meanness of a typical colonial bean counter. With sanctions imposed on the country, fuel was tightly rationed, and many vehicles, such as our Land Rover, ran on an evil blend of diesel and paraffin. Many other petrol-based vehicles ran on a mixer of petrol and ethanol. This innocuously named blend could be purchased from most fuel stations if you had coupons. But this paraffin mix, well, on the other hand, that was my father's ingenious invention, which we all accepted, despite the very real possibility that it might explode at any moment. With tubes and pipes leading from a wobbly jerry can stuck behind the driver's seat, this vehicle was definitely a health hazard. We fed a pipe from a can of paraffin in the back through the cab to the petrol tank. It was innovative, dangerous, and light on fuel. But of course, no one thought not to smoke. Everyone smoked back then. The faithful Jeep, or Land Rover, as old as the farm itself, boasted a bent frame, was rewired, re-engined, re-muffled, and had a strong head that pulled to one side like a horse. The water pump was shot, the camshaft bearings and seals were gone, the alternator was fried, the worn clutch plate was in dire need of realigning. The fuel line was clogged and normally required weekly cleaning by a farm mechanic who blew out the crap. The steering gear assembly was wrecked. Oh, and it had a fucked diff. But once going, nothing could stop that bastard of a thing. Quite literally, the brakes were also buggered and required frantic pumping to get the hydraulic fluid flowing. And about that steering assembly, another major hazard, you could literally rotate at 360 degrees without any noticeable movement from the wheels. After three or four, maybe full rotations, the sluggish vehicle would start to turn. Seriously, it was like maneuvering the Queen Mary into dry dock. I learned to drive in this old rust bucket. The results of wrenching up that steering wheel remained with me when I used to drive a Morris Minor in London, grinding the gears and almost tearing the wheel from the shaft. Passengers used to look at me like I was a maniac. 
Meanwhile, John lit another fag and we drove around the shed, stopping to have a word with Sixpence, the cattle boy, and Solomon, the mechanic, who was hammering away at a spare part in the garage. Well, not a garage, basically a gum pole and corrugated iron lean-to, oily black from years of sumps being drained from tractors. Christ, muttered John to himself. Why do they always have to be so bloody rough? Look at him just pounding away at that spare part. Mind you, the whole setup was all a bit, well, Heath Robinson in those days. Tractors were held together with wire and rubber bands. Nuts and bolts soaked in kerosene were ready to be reused again and again. An old orange Nuffield tractor covered in bird crap and rusted to hell, weeds and a stunted wild cherry growing through the frame, wasn't done for. In fact, with a bit of hammering and greasing, who knows what life we could get out of the old bugger. The Wood family was never exactly renowned for its mechanical expertise. Those posh farms over the great dike in Umbuquis boasted teams of highly skilled mechanics attired in bright blue clean overalls and gumboots, while our born and bred Masipui lads were clad in stained trousers torn at the knee and patched at the backside. My father, it could be said, had a deep understanding of recycling or at least never throwing away anything that might come in handy next week, next year, or next decade. Also in the yard were remnants of a bygone age, skeletons of vintage cars that were ancient even when Woody was a kid. God knows where they came from. I don't think my father owned them, but I suspect they came from his mad car collector friend, Norrie Spicer. We never ventured into that scrap heap, largely because cobras and mombas lived amongst the rusty axles and tangled blackjack bushes. And across from the garage, a small brick hut belched out fluffy white puffs of powder. This was the poop shed. Poop, of course, was not the, well, it wasn't the fecal variety, but the word used for ground maize or mealy meal. A rhythmic thumping could be heard from inside as the rickety mill, attached to a tractor by a fan belt, did its magic, grinding the homegrown corn into a fine powder. Poop, beans, and dried fish were doled out weekly by the boss boy to all the men and women who worked on the farm. He would stand waist-deep, covered head to toe in the white powder, scooping large ladles of the meal into eagerly awaiting chipped enamel buckets. Occasionally, he would laugh out loud at a joke, his teeth whiter than white, his eyes shining, his skin and curly hair powdered like an 18th century aristocrat or mad professor. Sometimes he would shout at a worker who had been skiving off, or had not done his share that week, scolding him and telling him and Shona to bugger off, although I suspect that was all for show when my father was around. No one ever went hungry. We would always stop off at the feed pens. John was a cattleman, first and foremost. Tobacco, of course, paid the bills, but cattle was his love. Many farmers kept pure breeds, but for general hardiness and quality of meat, hybrid vigor was the order of the day. In our case, it was a cross between the Hereford for the meat 
and the Brahmin or the Afrikaner for the hardiness. Other farmers who had pedigree herds, such as Bill Francis with his magnificent white herd of Charolais, or Selby Chance with his stout caramel Sussex, often ribbed John for his crossbreeds. The offspring of the Masitwi cattle often ended up with the beautiful white fluffy faces of the Hereford and the heavy-set rumps of the Afrikaner with their large humped back. Sheep, on the other hand, were Dorpers, a cross between the Dorset Horn and the Blackhead Persian. The Persian side providing resistance to drought the Dorset, offering the best lamb and mutton on the market. Separately, these breeds offered little, yet when mixed, they produced succulent meat in a harsh environment. My mother and I adored breeding sheep. She purchased the first batch of ewes and a ram from Martin and Mary Milan in Raffangora. The Milans were one of the country's top dorper breeders and would later take me on as an assistant, teaching me everything I ever needed to know about rearing dorpers, from castrating to dosing, to foot rot and lambing, and finally, to using a lethal electric saw when cutting up the meat into chops, loins, legs, and fillets. I loved it. My father hated sheep. Sheep and all their problems were simply dismissed as a waste of time. I mean, I could, I could see his point. Sheep were quite needy. I suspect his dislike for sheep stemmed from those days back in Scotland when he had to run all over the hills looking for wild Scottish blackface. Before I went to boarding school, my relationship with my dad was close. My siblings had been shipped off to Mvuki school, so with no friends around, these trips down to the sheds were to become one of our daily highlights. Once I went to school, well, we became distant. Sometimes when he was angry, he would blame my mum, saying that she had turned me against him. Of course, this was absolute rubbish. As I grew up, I became more aware of his temper and his fights with my mother, and these had a profound effect on me, certainly into my late teens. My strained relationship with my father often meant that I was scared shitless to try and make an effort with him. He could be, well, he could be extremely intimidating. Returning from boarding school, I would rack my brains trying to think of a question that would not make him snort or think me an idiot. Inevitably, my asinine conversation with my father would tend to be all about the rainy season or how did the dipping go. I wasn't capable of saying, John, tell me, why do you think that beast would fetch more at the market than the other and why did you choose that bull rather than the other? And what are the merits of feeding the cattle with urea? And at what stage does urea become toxic to a ruminant? Do you know what? I have absolutely no doubt he would have loved to answer these questions. But I never gave him the chance. And like farmers the world over, my father kept to a strict routine. Mornings on the farm always began at sparrow fart, as he liked to call it. Everything in the household would be woken by great hacking coughs coming from my parents' room, huge, retching, phlegmy barks that rumbled through the slumbering home. It sounded like the bugger would be dead before Condor had laid the breakfast table. 
those country club cheroots were finally taking their toll on his lungs and would continue to plague him until his death some 30 years later. Jesus, John, my mum would moan as she reached for the tea's maid. You'll wake the bloody dead. Is that what you want, woman, he would retort as he made his way along the veranda to down his one and only coke of the day, always followed by a loud burp. Damn good, he would remark to himself. The only way to get rid of a hangover. Then he would be off to the other section, which required driving some distance every day. The other section was about five miles from the homestead over stunning countryside. His day would often begin with this lonely drive on his own through the farm to check on the work along the way. Like the main section, the other section was built almost identically, rows of tobacco barns with a grading shed in the middle. The compound on the other section was much larger, owing to there being more arable land and therefore more hands needed to work it. The manager's house at the time was a rather ugly square structure built atop a granite rock overlooking the valley towards the Great Dyke, another bit of architecture designed on the back of a fag packet. God, you know, I could never describe Masitwi as attractive, although at times of the year, like in spring, it did have its pretty side. Most of it, though, was inspiring. Grey-blue, leafless trees in the dry season, stretching to the horizon like a Chinese ink sketch. The copies emerging from the grey wash like sugarloaf mountains. In late October, early November, the grey would suddenly burst like magic into a whole spectrum of reds and greens as the new leaves broke free from the tough bark of lifeless trees. And in the summer, you were surrounded by a universe of deep sea green right up to the roadside. Often surprising browsing antelopes such as kudu, daika, impala. And if you were really lucky, the majestic yet shy sable antelope. His daily drive each morning would have greeted him with sights that must have, even for a tough old bugger like Woody, well, must have taken his breath away. Above the dawn mist, the peaks of Matimba and the bald coffee rose like islands, momentarily bright, lit by the early morning sun. Around him and in the uninhabited Mazindarindi Valley to his right, it was often like sitting on the shore of a sea of swirling white vapor as waves of light from the distant dike washed the sides of the rocky granite hills. The few times I got up early enough, I would witness this sight. It was enchanting. And if ever one was to believe in God, ghosts, fairies, or sprites, this was the time. You know, but not one for fancy words. Woody might just shake his head at breakfast and say, Jesus, Lib, what a sunrise today. Then go back to his porridge. He may not have had the words to express himself, but his love of this land was profound. Woody never varied his routine much, even during the Bush War. Despite the imminent danger from landmines and terrorist ambush, John always came home safe. It was often said that the terrorists used the farm as a base camp and were not about to shit on their own doorstep. I have no doubt in my mind that they knew his every move. 
day in and day out. And I'm certain John was very aware of this too as he revved the engine between the gullies and the fords that frothed aquamarine from the minerals washed down from the great dike. In the rainy season, the small rivers would become torrents, washing away the road in places, creeping along in four-wheel drive, the tires sliding in the red mud. John must have thought he was a sitting duck. And all along the way, the road wound between the balancing rocks, the dense bush, the massive dwellers, veering around the cattle grid, which had several loose crossbars, past the old dip with its sagging thatched roof, a brief stop at the cattle lick to throw off a block of salt and then through to the other section, a journey that might take half an hour. And after a cup of tea with the manager, John would be back in the Land Rover, checking on whatever seasonal job needed seeing to, from plowing and harrowing to sowing the tobacco seed beds or topping the flowers of the young plants. There was always something to do and someone to yell at or instruct or shake his head at and growl about how this damn farm was just a bloody money pit. And then the same journey back, the way he had come to the main farm in time for tea. I don't think Woody ever hugged me or picked me up as a child. Well, perhaps he picked me up, but he had other ways of showing his love. His tales of the bush and wildlife were like adventures straight out of storybooks. His unwavering love of Rhodesia, his constant disappointment with England, and his hatred and disgust of what he referred to as that insipid Harold Wilson government kept us constantly amused. Sometimes he would take us out on the lawn at night and lie down, staring at the Milky Way and point out the constellations in particular, his own star sign, Scorpio, snaking across the universe with its curved tail ready to strike. More than any constellation, Scorpius resembles its namesake. If you live in the northern hemisphere, Scorpius crawls across the southern sky, close to the horizon. But if you live in the southern hemisphere, it passes high in the sky, the bright star Antares, marks the heart of the arachnid and its long curving tail trails to the south. The scorpion once had claws, but they were cut off by Julius Caesar to form the constellation Libra. The scorpion also holds an infamous place in Greek mythology as the slayer of Orion. One story tells that Orion fled the scorpion by swimming the sea to the island of Delos to see his lover, Artemis. Apollo, seeking to punish Artemis, joined her and challenged her hunting skills, daring her to shoot the black dot that was approaching in the water. Artemis won the challenge, unknowingly killing her lover by doing so. It's a story of daring, betrayal, and courage, and of hunting so typical of my father. The Southern Cross was a favorite, and he taught us how to find magnetic south by following the pointer stars and bisecting them straight down the middle. These lessons were both practical and fabulously interesting and rather rare. John had a gentleness which could be seen when using a needle to remove a thorn from our foot or blowing an egg 
or sticking together a delicate model of a ship. It surprised me to find I carried none of these genes. I have little patience for this kind of thing. My attempts at crafts, origami, or model-making ended with tons of glue all over the place, lots of crumpled paper on the floor, and a hideously ugly clay ashtray that was quite unusable. John encouraged us to take up hobbies. I mean, his idea of a hobby generally involved the great outdoors. He taught us how to blow bird's eggs by pricking a tiny hole in the end and puffing through a straw or just your mouth until all the contents had dribbled out. He was finicky in that sort of way. I, I generally broke the egg, but he was an expert. And he had an extensive collection which he had started when he was a kid, gently and safely packed in cotton wool and neat boxes separated by delicate compartments, each containing one egg, protected and coveted like a curator for the Darwin Collection at the National History Museum and each egg neatly labeled with a number and a name. There were delicate blue eggs and large green speckled eggs, brown and beige, and one tiny egg that was almost aubergine. The rarest egg was possibly the least interesting, belonging to the Verose eagle, also known as the black eagle. The elongated chalky white egg looked more like that of a bantam. But to get it, John had to climb the sheer cliff of a granite copy to reach the eyrie, explaining that he only ever took one egg to ensure that the birds could keep reproducing. All my young life, a pair of black eagles soared hypnotically above our farm, and despite their vast range, the pair would always come home to Mesitui to roost. Sadly, typical of kids, we didn't look after the egg collection, and by the time I was a teenager, most of them had been broken, the entire box finally getting chucked out one day. Woody insisted on punctuality far beyond what was necessary. If we were five minutes late, he would yell at us. Yet he himself never owned a watch, was never late, and always rose with the sparrows. I mean, decades later, I still found myself arriving at dinner parties absolutely on the dot, often finding my hosts half-dressed and in a total flap. John had a canny way of being able to see into a person. He either liked you or did not like you. It was simple as that. Impatient, utterly intolerant, easily irritated, fastidious to an Obsessive degree, he couldn't bear the idea of men wearing cologne or smellies, as he called them, other than vitalis for his hair. Yet incredibly courageous and possessed of great charm and old-world manners. If ever we had a dull or boring guest, he was quick to grumble. Haven't these people no bloody homes to go to? Now, back at the barns, John would make a final scan of the yard, then away we went, laboring up the hill past the servants' compound, a mist of blue smoke creeping through the thatch of the conical huts, swerving to miss the Mesitui Wanderers Football Club ball, which was made out of rolled-up plastic bags, as we went. The Mesitui Wanderers were well known to be rough players. They practiced on a pitch that sloped to the 35-degree angle and had a large anthill right in the middle. 
arable land on Masitui was at a premium. When the Wanderers won the Interfarms Championship one year, we bought them all boots and jerseys. These lasted about a week until my father found the entire team wearing the boots and jerseys while working in the fields. He confiscated the lot. We rounded the corner past some giant poinsettias that had grown so large they reached across the road like a canopy and onto the front lawn under the shade of a magnificent cassia fistula, its luscious blooms drooping down in bunches and carpeting the floor of the lawn in canary yellow. The gate to the security fence was open and the dogs dashed out, barking and snapping at the wheels. Jumping up and slobbering all over me, we moved en masse into the main garden. Conda, called John. Buisati. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye. <laughs>